portion of Luke from chapter, the end of chapter 9 all the way to maybe chapter 19, Jesus is making his way. He's journeying south to Jerusalem. So you know what this is? This is a walk and talk. That's what this is, a walk and talk. That's a phrase that was made famous by my favorite TV show, The West Wing. If anyone ever watches that show, they just walk through the halls of uh, the White House and that they have all their meetings kind of through the halls. And anyway, it, it got famous for these long scenes and that's not interesting. Um, I love the idea of a good walk and talk video. In fact, you know, this is our third gathering place in a row that's a little bit off the beaten path. You know, we were in the back of this sort of office building on Main Street in downtown Littleton, and then we were in a refurbished warehouse, the Life Center, you know, and now we're here. And, and you know, whenever we come into a new space, I'm like, how are we going to tell people how to find us? I know, we'll shoot this cool video. And, you know, there will be someone, maybe me, someone, maybe someone more camera friendly, who's, you know, out on Broadway and, and talking about the community. And then, you, and then you just start walking, you know, and the camera sees you and, and they see you walk in and, oh, there's the parking lot. And, oh, you go in that door. And, and you know, you're like, come on come with me, you know, and you walk into the sanctuary. And for some reason, that idea has consistently been shut down by the staff every time I propose it. And so we have not filmed a walk and talk. This passage is Jesus's walk and talk. It is a long, intense walk and talk. It goes past where we stopped. It keeps going to, I think, to 13 Nine, it goes and goes. He is really getting into it with the people there. And it's not ever clear. Is he talking to just his disciples who might be huddled close to him? Is he talking to a larger crowd? Is he talking to a few, but he knows other people can hear? You know, it's sort of the insider, outsider, you know, kind of thing. Who knows? Um, who knows? We could speculate. That doesn't really matter. What Jesus is doing in this walk and talk is not a commercial for how to find the underground. He's doing a teaching on how to find salvation. That's what he's talking about. And he's talking especially about security. That's what this passage is all about. It's about security. And Jesus identifies in the bit that we heard the two main ways that human beings try to find security. There's two main things that we do to try to find security. Number one, social connections. We try to find security in the dynamics we have with other people. If you have good social network, if you have strong social connections, that can insulate you from all sorts of difficulties. There are some here, not everyone I know, but there are some here that you know that if you woke up tomorrow and someone had successfully stolen everything from you, your bank accounts were completely empty, everything was empty, you, you had nothing, you know that you have layers of people in your life who would not let you even skip one meal. Like that's, a, that's wonderful. And that's, you know, I think some, some authors describe that as really the, the truer definition of wealth is having those types of social connections, that social stability. In fact, I'd love for this church 
to be that for everyone else in this church. I mean, that's, that's the dream. That's what we pray in the generosity prayer, is that you all, regardless of what your family life is or your outside world, would experience that wealth here. Jesus promised that of his disciples. Not one of you who's left mother or father, brother or sister, uh, will all of you who've left mother, father, brother, or sister to follow me will experience far more in this life. It's this promise of what we have in the family. Okay, that's a biblical vision, all right? But the truth is, more typically, when our security is on the line, we try to act the part to gain the security we need. This is a normal human response. You do what you need to do. You, uh, you put on the attitude you need to have. You take the tone. You make the connections. You, you figure out how to do that well because you've got a sense, this person could take care of me or this person would be a big problem if they didn't like me. You know, We, we seek that in social circles. And when we do that and the way we're acting doesn't quite match what's going on inside, Jesus calls that hypocrisy. Of course, um, there are limits to the help that people can, can give because you're not always easy to get along with. There are limits to it. There are situations where you, even those of you who could think of all of those layers, you could also think of a situation where you got yourself into the problem and it's, such, it's the sort of thing that the layers of people around you thought the most loving thing I can do is let them face the consequences of this. And so what do we trust more than people? Cash. We trust money more than people. Like, you know, these things ebb and flow. I don't really know what's out there. But if I can pay for it, it's okay. My, my money doesn't care whether I'm a jerk. It doesn't. It doesn't care whether I, I told the truth or not. It, it, it gets the job done, regardless of relationships. In case you've forgotten, back in Luke, the scene just before this, Jesus is uh, at a dinner. He's interacting with people. He's having an argument, especially with religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they, they touch a nerve for Jesus, and he, uh, he goes off, as you might say. He starts listing off, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you for this. He is accusing them in detail of all sorts of hypocrisy, how they are using their social status, their religious clout, their control over people to create social security for themselves. And so when he does that, their interest in him shifts. They're no longer curious whether or not this guy is the Messiah. Now they're curious how they can find a way to trip him up or to see him trip up so that they can get this dangerous upstart out of the way because he is threatening their security. That's how chapter 11 ends. And immediately... In chapter 12, Jesus is, you know, scene change. Jesus is out on the road, giant crowd. And what does he do? His first words to the crowd, you know, hey, this just came to mind. 
watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a Greek word. I don't mean it's, there's a Greek word for the word hypocrisy. I mean, it is a Greek word that we've just turned into an English word. Hupokrises might be the way to pronounce it in Greek. But it is, it, it's, we've just taken it over because we can't think of a better word for it. It might, it might relate to being an actor, being someone who puts on a performance, but is somebody else. It might also just be do, going your own way rather than obeying the Lord. It turns out that it is not just the Pharisees who are prone to hypocrisy and greed. It's all of us. Jesus is among the crowd. Who knows if the Pharisees is there, are there or not? There's thousands, so they probably are. But he's among the crowd, and he's telling everyone, beware of this. We are all prone to it. Why? Well, if I could accuse you for a second because we don't fear or trust God. That's why we're prone to hypocrisy and greed. We haven't grasped the gift of the kingdom. We feel safer with people and money, those things we can see and measure. We have a sense of whether we're okay or not in any given situation. Maybe that's not all of you. Maybe some of you are free of those things. Tell me how. <laughs> like, come, Let's have coffee and teach me your ways. Uh, I have to say we because I am preaching to myself in this. And I'm hoping I'm not the only one in the room who puts a sinful amount of trust in people and money. This passage is a stiff warning about hypocrisy and greed. And so I, I want to, it was long, but I want to group it into three main points about hypocrisy and greed. Number one, they, uh, they sneak up imperceptibly. They, they grow imperceptibly. Number two, they're untrustworthy. And number three, they have a simple antidote. All right? These poisons grow imperceptibly. They're untrustworthy. And they have a simple antidote. There's our outline. Okay, number one, they sneak in imperceptibly. So the first way Jesus teaches about hypocrisy, which really could include greed in his way of thinking, but the first way he teaches us about hypocrisy is by comparing uh, it to yeast or leaven. This is the stuff that makes bread rise, all right? And it was likely discovered by the Egyptians about 5,000 years ago. You know, the theory is somebody left some wet, flour out in the sun basically and it started to bubble and do things and they real and it's like let's cook this <laughs> and eat it i don't know that's that's how inventions happen i guess so anyway uh with the discovery of bread whether it happened like that or or not um uh people discovered like oh this is this is much more delicious when it's airy and fluffy and you can bite through it and wow you know that so um that's how it started. Uh, now, today, yeast is used generally as an additive to dough, which makes it rise. Uh, so it's the fermented material that is mixed into the dough. But in the first century, when Jesus is talking to these people, yeast generally occurred naturally in the dough itself. 
And so, uh, you know, you'd mix flour and water, you'd put it in the right circumstances, and the fermentation would happen. And what a baker would do, what the bread maker would do, is what a lot of you bread makers, I know this includes my wife, do, is they would keep a little batch called starter. And you keep your starter alive. You know, that's, that's where you want to keep the fermentation happening. I'm not a chemist, so I'm going to stop explaining it there. You know, and then you add, you know, when you're making your bread, you add, mix a little bit of that in, and then you keep this alive, and, and then you make your bread. That's how it would happen. Okay. It was worth the wait. Bread is soft and delicious when it's had time to rise. Yeast isn't a bad thing on its own, but it is a great illustration for Jesus. Why? Well, the first reason why is we need a little bit of Bible history to understand. Though Jesus uh, accessed the whole of the Hebrew scriptures when he was teaching, there were two stories that dominated his mind, all right, that he went back to again and again. He often made references back to Eden, back to creation, all right? There's, there's a bit of that, but his favorite story that he goes back to over and over, the thing that he's almost reliving in his life is the Israelites being set free from Egypt, all right? And famously, when Pharaoh finally gave in and allowed the Israelites to leave Egypt, they left in such a hurry that their bread did not have time to develop yeast. It didn't have time to rise. And so the unleavened bread was a symbol of their rescue from Egypt. Interesting. So when Jesus says the Pharisees have yeast, it, this, is a, this is a deep burn. All right, He's saying the religious leaders have gone back to Egypt. Just like the Israelites did whenever they were tempted in the wilderness. They wanted to go back. Oh, we had food there. We were comfortable there. He is accusing them of living under Pharaoh, so to speak, of departing from God's leadership and going back to what they perceive is comfortable. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees who claim to hate Rome actually have a vested interest in keeping the status quo. That's what he's saying. They want to be where their bread has time to rise. They don't want to leave in, a, in haste and eat flat bread. Okay, that's the first reason. The second reason this is a good illustration is that, you know, without any grasp of microbiology, all of Jesus' listeners knew that yeast grows imperceptibly over time. That literally you can't see it happening. That This is a gracious description of the Pharisees. This way of thinking, their way of operating sneaks in quietly. It's not like one day they decided to act the way they're acting. Their motives were to honor God. But over time, it became about status. Over time, it grew. Jesus says their secrets will be revealed. The whispers will become public. You don't know dough has yeast in it until you put it in the oven. Right? You don't know. It, two batches could look exactly the same. One will rise and one won't. The secrets will be revealed. The yeast is exposed when the heat is on. 
In fact, the rest of his discussions here are examples of the heat getting turned on and what happens to us when we get put in the oven. He talks about going to trial for following him. He talks about, he talks to this guy with his brother about this financial injustice he's feeling. He talks even about success. And each of those things are times when the heat rises. And the question is, what will they reveal? Will they reveal hypocrisy or not? That's the question. Okay. So his first illustration is yeast. His second illustration is this, this situation that the guy raises. Remember in the middle of the passage, Jesus finishes his scary stuff. He's talking about the unforgivable sins and hell. And what does a guy in the crowd do? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Like, whoa, okay. I guess we'll talk about that instead. I just gave you really scary news. Are you sure? <laughs> you know, no. So, all right. This isn't an uncommon situation. In the, in the Israel culture, in the Hebrew culture, it was, a, it was guidance in the Torah for how family inheritance was supposed to work. So all of the possessions would pass to the firstborn son, and it was his responsibility to divide it fairly and, and, and to care for the rest of his family well. That was his responsibility. And so often what would happen all throughout the Israel's history is if a brother, you know, if I'm a younger brother and my older brother is hoarding the stuff and, and it's not fair to me and I'm suffering, I could go to the rabbi. I could go to my religious leader who can interpret the law and say, will you tell my brother to do the right thing? That's what I can do. It's not a, really an inappropriate question on its own. Its timing is strange. And, and uh, so what's fascinating to me is that, that Jesus responds to him kind of with a snarky thing. Like, man, who appointed me to be a judge or arbitrator between you? Um, which is an interesting question. Let's go back to Egypt one more time. You may know the story of Moses, but if you don't, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's household. And then when he's an adult, he first one day he sees a, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he kills that guy and buries him, you know, hides the body. It's just your standard murder. And, uh, and then the next day, uh, he sees two Hebrews arguing and uh, he goes to them and tries to get them to stop. And, uh, and they say to him, who appointed you to be a judge over us? It's the same phrase. It's really interesting. And then they say, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And Moses is like, oh, no, I'm trapped. And he uh, escapes. You know, he runs away. So that's a, it's just a, it's kind of a weird tie-in. What's interesting in both questions to me is that the, the, the question assumes the answer, no one. It's phrased as if, like if you ask that, like, who may do this for me? The, the assumed answer is, well, oh, yeah, no one. It's not my right. But the true answer in both cases for Moses and for Jesus is, well, God did. God appointed me to be a judge over you. <laughs> Which is interesting that Jesus asked the question in that way that it would, it would lead the guy to say no one, but the truth is 
He's about to render judgment. And then he tells a story, right, about not hoarding possessions and calls us to generosity. But we can't get ahead of ourselves. Why does Jesus turn from this guy back to the crowds and give his second warning? His, his first warning, the, the, the first thing that can sneak up on us imperceptibly is hypocrisy. The second one is be on your guard against greed. Greed. Both things sneak up when we don't notice them. Like this guy. He, the injustice is leading him to say, like, I'm not being greedy. I just got to fight for my rights and my well-being. And that happens to us. We don't feel like it's greedy when, when there's something unfair happens. Like, you know, you're, you're I don't know, you, your company missed a paycheck. They were supposed to pay you. It's not greedy to go and say, hey, you owe me another month's pay. Right? So that's, that's interesting. But that's Jesus' judgment. He instead goes to this guy's heart and says, beware of greed. Hmm. It's so interesting, particularly when it comes to inheritance, how that can tear a family apart. It's so interesting. And I know many of you have maybe experienced that with generations dying. And, and you know, if there is anything to hand on. There's so much emotion tied up with it. You know, this isn't, you know, a commercial for a lawyer or anything, but having a clear and just and, and up-to-date will is a really good idea. You know, I can't help you with that, but I think you should do that. I've seen it many times with people I really respect who don't even talk to siblings anymore because of that. The man was probably correct. His brother probably owed him. His brother was probably being unfair. But Jesus looks at his heart, and to give his judgment, he tells another story. And the story doesn't quite make sense. Because he tells a story, not about inheritance, not about fairness. You know, you might expect like the prodigal son story, because that's about inheritance. No, 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 he doesn't tell that. He tells a story about a financial windfall. He tells a story about a time a farmer who has a surprisingly fruitful crop and has to figure out what to do with it. And so the farmer makes a savvy business move. Just good, just good financial wisdom this, far, this farmer is doing. He needs to store his produce. He doesn't want all of his crops to flood the market and drive prices down. So he decides to build, build barns, store them, and release them more slowly to maximize his profits. That's what the farmer wants to do. Friends, supply and demand, that's just good business, what he's doing there. I mean, this guy, in fact, he celebrates that he's done this so well that he's going to have what you know financial people call passive income for the rest of his life. He can kick back and relax. He doesn't have to farm his crops anymore. He knows this is going to carry him for the rest of his life. So, all right, why is this a story that would have anything to do with this other thing? Well, the key is in verse 19, all right? The guy makes a speech to himself. Go to the next slide, all right? 
He's, and this is what it said in the translation I read to you. This is verse, the start of verse 19. And I will say to myself, you have plenty, da, 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 you know. I'll say to myself, you have plenty, so you can kick back and relax. That's the, but here is what the Greek says. Next slide. I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty, da, 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 da. And then Jesus says the, that God will say to him, you fool, this very night they will demand your soul from you. It's fascinating. This man has a good business moment and he decides that not only will this crop, you know, take care of him financially, but it will guard his very life, his very soul. He has the security that so many of us long for. When you see a big number on the lottery billboard and you imagine for a second winning it, that security that you feel, that's what he feels. Ah, my soul can be at rest. He can live off the surplus. Rather, as commentators have throughout the centuries, from, from the, the earliest commentators in the year 200 all the way till now, commentators say what Jesus is implying here is that the, the simple interpretation of Hebrew law is when you have surplus in your crops, what do you do? You give it to the poor. That's what you do. You don't store it and hoard it. You give it away. One says, you know, it's so clever. One says he didn't realize that it's a far, uh, a far wiser investment and safer storage in the bellies of the hungry than in his big new barns. He didn't realize. You fool, this very night, your soul will be demanded from you. So, for the brother, it was financial injustice that exposed his greed. And in this story for the farmer, it's actually a windfall that exposes his greed. He decides to keep it. They expose how much security we find in money. Jesus has to warn us about greed and hypocrisy because they can grow without us knowing that they're there. Here's what we do, guys. We always compare ourselves to people who have it slightly better than us. I'm not greedy. They're greedy. That's what happens. That's, that's our norm to do. So what's Jesus' message about these things? I'm saying it so gently here. They're not trustworthy. <laughs> greed and hypocrisy are not trustworthy. Like, of course, when you say it as greed and hypocrisy, let me say it this way. Putting on an act to win Social Security or Gaining lots of money is not as trustworthy as we might think. The secrets will be exposed this very night. Our soul will be demanded from us. If there is a God, if the Bible is guided by him and tells us who he really is, then we can be assured of facing some form of this question at the great day of the Lord. Where did you place your trust. What did you put your trust in? Why are hypocrisy and greed so very dangerous? Because they are descriptions of people who have placed their trust in people or in stuff. 
That's what they are. The answer will be exposed. It will be revealed when the heat is on. It will be revealed in conflict. Where did you put your trust? The heart of hypocrisy is acting in a way so that people can take care of you. The heart of greed is acting in a way so that things can take care of you and you can take care of yourself. In this category, Jesus says some terrifying things. God responds in kind to our lack of trust. He says, okay, you want to put your trust in people? Fine. People will be your protection. Okay, you want to put your trust in money? Fine. Money will be your protection. He gives us what we want. He responds in kind. You deny me and the, when the heat's on? Well, then I'll deny you. That's, it's a harsh way to say that he's giving us exactly what we want. I mean, the, there's a terrifying line in this passage where he says, the sin, you know, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. I was telling the guys on Thursday, you know, a couple times a year, I'll get a call from a stranger on the church phone, you know, my office phone, and it's somebody who's come across this verse, and they're, deal they're in a dark time in their life, but they are so afraid that at some point they have accidentally blasphemed the Spirit, and they can never be forgiven. And so they want to know, is that true? You know, it, it's scary. But that's not the only place Jesus threatens hell in this passage. He literally says, don't fear people. Fear the one who can throw you into hell. Later he talks about, you know, that God saying, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. All of this is a warning about some eternal spiritual judgment that is coming. The message seems to be God will allow you to choose your own protection. In his grace, he will allow you to choose your protection, but he won't share the job. You don't get to diversify your investments in this one. He won't share the job. I, uh, this week, I compiled a ton of different takes on the concept blaspheming the spirit. You know, the natural response when we hear that phrase that it can never be forgiven, we're like, can you explain specifically what that is so that I can know that specifically I never do it? You know, I don't want to like, I don't want to stumble into that one. Like, oh, I didn't realize, you know. Uh, so, you know, I compiled all this stuff. I was going to go through all of it, but I think actually that misses the point. Jesus says it a while after the Pharisees said that he's, been casting out demons by Beelzebul, you know, the prince of demons. Uh, he says it immediately after he says God has authority to throw us into hell and that the son would deny us before the angels if we deny the son before people. So I'm thinking they're all related. All these things are related. And also that we're in the wrong place interpretively if we're just trying to figure out how do I avoid the bad thing? Right? How do I avoid the sin? Here's the question. Do you think that someone who has entrusted their well-being to God through Jesus is in danger of blaspheming the Spirit? Do you think God would like leave that little trap out there, that little bear trap on the way of salvation? I, I don't think so. 
But if we're on trial, as this passage describes, rather than placing our trust in the Spirit, uh, who, who would give us the words to show that Jesus is the rightful King, if, if, if in that moment of testing, if we decide instead to support the case against Jesus, because we think that that's the safer way for us to go in that moment, we are showing that our trust is in people and not in him. Jesus has found an example that work both ways. If in trial I act as if God won't vindicate me, he'll go with that. He won't. But if I act as if he will, he will. He will. Let me be clear. The Spirit's glorious task in you, in your life, and in the world is to draw attention to the Son. That's the main thing the Holy Spirit is about. That's what the Holy Spirit does. If a gift of the Spirit shows up, he's trying to shine a spotlight on Jesus. That's what he's trying to do. And if we reject the Son, we have blasphemed the Spirit. That's it. That's the Spirit's main thing. And if we say, nope, not buying what you're selling, that's blaspheming the Spirit. God won't forgive us because we're not asking him to. Blaspheming the Spirit is someone who's saying, I don't need you. I'll do it on my own. The moment we ask for forgiveness, we're not blaspheming the Spirit. That's how my logic goes anyway. Why aren't hypocrisy and money as trust, trustworthy as they appear? Well, if you, if you know about the Christian story, if you know the Bible, you already know the answer. These things are temporary and they can be taken away. Thieves and moths are threats to them. But more than that, Jesus is presenting human life as stretching beyond death. He's presenting it as longer than that. He's already predicted his resurrection. He's bringing the eternal hope of the prophets into reality. And neither hypocrisy nor money can cross the threshold into that glorious reality. They are fake security, but they're so appealing. So our misplaced trust must be replaced. So what's the antidote? I'm calling the antidote a simple antidote. That doesn't mean it's easy <laughs> or not complicated. You know, there, like there's a lot here. But let me, let me say it a different way. The way out of misplaced trust, according to Jesus in his long walk and talk, is biblical anthropology. You can write that down. Biblical anthropology, understanding what God thinks about people. As we do that, we depart from misplaced trust. How do we learn what God thinks about people? Do you sign up for an anthropology course at Arapo Community College? Well, not according to Jesus, although I'm sure that would be helpful for some of you. We do it, ironically, not by studying people at all, but by looking at birds and flowers. That's how we learn biblical anthropology. We look at birds and flowers. God made the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 says. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. So Jesus says, look up at the heavens. 
and look down at the earth and remember what God made. When we look up, we see the birds, the sparrows and ravens, the things that occupy the heavens, the warnings about hell and being denied and blasphemed in the spirit could be taken as terrifying. But in the middle of those things, Jesus goes on to these lovely statements about birds. He's like, hey, you know, uh, if you do this, you're at risk of hell. But look at the bird. Like God loves you more than a bird. That's what, that's what he does. God knows life and death of all of the birds, even the cheap birds. How much more does he care about your life? Ravens are well-fed and they don't have barns. How much more does he care about us? The flowers, the lilies, the things that pop out of the ground. Jesus, you know, he has, he has his people along the road. He's like, look at the flowers, look at them. They're so beautiful and they didn't need to earn anything to look that beautiful. It's a lesson of taking the lesser to see the greater. He says, look at these things that are lesser things. The birds and the flowers are lesser things. Now consider people. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he put people in them to represent him. That's his message. That's his story. That's what the image of God is. How much more valuable are they to him than birds and flowers? Are you worried? Do you feel anxious? Friends, I, I, I have literally done this. Jesus commands to you, if you're worried about relationships or money or anything else, is get outside and sit there till you can see a bird and watch it. Just think about it. I am telling you, your, your anxiety will lessen. He will free you from that worry in that moment. Observe its freedom and its beauty. And remember, God will care for you so much more. And so when we do that, we begin to live in Christ-like generosity. We begin to seek first the kingdom. We give away our surplus. We're rich towards God. We work for the flourishing of others. That's how we represent him in this world. Friends, just as you can never trust a bike until you actually ride it, you can never trust God until you actually start giving things away sacrificially. This is how we learn it. That's the simple antidote. Trust is a muscle we develop. So, little flock, hear the gospel as we finish. Your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. He wants to give it to you. It's his joy to give it to you so that you can give it away. That's how we seek it first. It flows through us. The gospel on Jesus' lips is the kingdom is mine to give and I'm giving it to you. That's what we remember when we come to the table. Jesus giving himself to us so that we have the kingdom. That's the gift. He is the heir of the kingdom, and he is generous. He is the older brother who has inherited everything and then gives it all away. That's who he is. He teaches us how to be free from greed 
and hypocrisy. Your money is not your life. Your friends, your family, the people you love right here, they're great. They're not your life. I have to look at you. I'm your pastor. I'm preaching a sermon to you. Whether you like this or not is not my life. He's my life. And that sets me free from hypocrisy and greed. Let's pray together. Lord, what a gift you have given us in this walk and talk. Lord, these things that creep into our lives again and again, Lord, they're, they're in our hearts right now. We don't even know it. Lord, would you reveal them to us? And would you set us free from them as we come to the table and receive what you have given? We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, brothers and sisters, both in the room and on stage, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had broken it and given thanks for it, he said, this is my body. Take this and eat, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I'd invite you as we sing to come and receive his free gift of life to you. Let's worship as we come.